Morning, everybody. So as you heard, I oversee our kids' ministry, so you can expect a lot of crowd participation this morning <laughs> as I present the Word of God to us. Um, let me start by just also praying for myself quickly and for this morning. Thank you, God, that your Word is good and true and alive and um, wants to come and change us. So God, would we... Would you do that through your word this morning? We open ourselves to hear from you and uh, to be changed by you. In Jesus' name, amen. Awesome, guys. Um, what a wonderful time of singing and worship this morning. Um, I want to say if you're coming uh, to One Hope this morning for the first time, you're walking into a building like this, uh, to a community like this. I remember when I did that when I was 15, I walked into a church like this, and it freaked me out, <laughs> if I'm honest. <laughs> um, and, uh, but I did have a little bit of curiosity. I was like, what's going on here? I remember I walked into a singing time like this. Guys were going wild, and I was like, whoa. <laughs> anyway, stuck it through. And that was a changing point in my life, that very, um, that very time together. And I want to encourage you and say thank you for coming out. But we also realize that sometimes we do stuff a certain way because we're very um, comfortable with the environment. And we love it when new people come in to just give us some help and guiding around how it can be more friendly to visitors and guests. So thank you for coming. And I hope you enjoy this morning. Relax. Um, I'm not going to ask you for all your money, just some of it. I'm joking. <laughs> but enjoy this morning uh, as we get into God's word. Um, we are in Ezra and Nehemiah, and we have been on this journey for about four weeks already. This is the fifth week, and um, so we've kind of been in and out of it. We've had a few interludes here and there, but I want to encourage you, if you are joining us for the first time or you haven't got into the series, go and listen to the sermons. They're on um, our website. They're also on our podcast, and uh, you will benefit richly um, from those from those talks. But just before we get involved here, to get us kind of all up to speed, before we get into Ezra and Nehemiah, I want to um, do a little bit of legwork up front, which we're going to do. And just as I've been reading the Old Testament um, and getting into studying this book, I was a little bit intimidated, if I'm honest, getting to Ezra and Nehemiah, thinking, I've never really studied this book. I don't really know much of its context. And so I was like, oh, okay, and then I've got to preach on it, <laughs> which is, uh, yeah, you can't really not know what you're talking about then, right? Um, but I was so encouraged because I chatted to some friends in our community, um, some guys here, and got some resources. One of the one, them we'll look at just now. And it's just come alive to me, this book of Ezra and Nehemiah in the Old Testament. As I've read it with friends, been encouraged, looked at things together, the Word of God has come alive. And that's really what it was made, how it was made to be read, how it was made to be studied. So I want to encourage you, get stuck into the Old Testament with some friends. Maybe you've got a small group here in church. Maybe you've got some Christian friends. That's how it was made to be read with community and in community and like this on a Sunday morning. And so get going bit by bit, little by little and see what God does. And so that's my challenge to you. But to maybe help out a little bit this morning as we work through the book, I'm going to give one or two little Bible reading tips as we go through that I found incredibly helpful and Paul uh, addressed in the last Ezra and Nehemiah sermon as well. So I'll pepper those in as we go to help us get stuck into um, this book. But before we do that, I'm going to leave it over to the Bible Project guys to give us a little intro of Ezra chapters 1 to 6. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah. In most modern Bibles, these books are separate, but that division happened long after it was written. It was originally a unified work written by a single author. The story is set after the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and its temple and took many of the people into exile. And this book picks up about 50 years later and tells the return of some Israelites to Jerusalem and then what happened when they rebuilt the city and their lives there. Specifically, the book focuses on three key leaders who led the rebuilding efforts. You have Zerubbabel, then Ezra, and then Nehemiah. 
And the book's design focuses on the efforts of each leader. Zerubbabel leads a large group of people back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Then about 60 years later, Ezra arrives in Jerusalem to teach the Torah and rebuild the community. And then he's followed by Nehemiah, who leads the rebuilding of Jerusalem's walls. And these three stories are designed to be parallel. Each begins with the king of Persia, prompted by God to send the leader to Jerusalem, and he offers resources and support. And then each leader encounters opposition in their efforts, which they then overcome, but in a way that leads to a strange anticlimax in each of the three parts. Let's back up and see how it fits together. So the story begins with a decree from Cyrus, the king of Persia, and he's moved by God to allow the exiles to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And the author says this fulfills a promise made by the prophet Jeremiah that the exiles would one day return to Jerusalem. Now, this fulfillment should trigger our hopes in the many other prophetic promises that exile was not the end of the story. We have hope for a future messianic king from the line of David. We have hope for a rebuilt temple where God's presence will dwell with his people. Hope for God's kingdom to come over all the nations and bring his blessing, just like he promised to Abraham. And so it's with all these hopes in mind that we read on into the story of Zerubbabel. His name means planted in Babylon. He represents the generation born in Babylonian captivity, and he leads a wave of Israelites returning to Jerusalem. After they settle there, they rebuild the altar for offering sacrifices and later the temple itself. The foundation-laying ceremony and then the temple's final dedication, these are key moments. The past stories of the tabernacle and temple's dedication should be in our minds. This is when the fiery cloud of God's presence is supposed to descend. He's dwelling with his people, and it doesn't happen. And so while some people are happy about this new temple, the elders who had seen the previous temple of Solomon, they cry out in grief. It is nothing like their glorious past or their hopes for the future. And it's right here that we get the first story of opposition, and it's very odd. So the grandchildren of the Israelites, who were not taken into exile, they had been living in Jerusalem all along, they come to offer help with the temple rebuilding. And Zerubbabel refuses. He says, you have no part in our temple. And this, of course, generates a conflict, which Zerubbabel overcomes. But it's very strange, because the prophets had envisioned that the tribes of Israel would all come together, along with all of the nations, to participate in the worship of the God of Israel when the kingdom finally comes. So this is an anticlimactic moment, to say the least. In the next section, we zoom forward. Okay, awesome. That carries on to look at the rest of the book, obviously, but we're just going to be focusing on one to six this morning, so I ended it there. And I'd love us to zoom into the one um, part of that uh, sketch or poster they display there. Can you have it? There we go. Um, and just have a quick look this morning on the left-hand side there, the parallel design. Persian king uh, is moved by God. He sends the Israelite leader. There's opposition they face to the task, and then the strange anticlimax. And so that's pattern or that design happens three times in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. We're going to be looking at the first section of that. Remember, Ezra and Nehemiah covers about a hundred year period in history. So we're just looking at the first section of that this morning in Ezra and Nehemiah, in Ezra 1 to 4. And so I want to ask the question this morning, if you've ever or have you ever missed an opportunity? Have you ever missed an opportunity? Has there ever been a gap that you regret not taking? What's the reason that you missed it? Maybe it was pride. 
the opportunity just didn't seem good enough, you know? Maybe the job offer just wasn't what you expected, and you can do more than that, you can do better than that. Maybe it was just ignorance, you didn't know how good the opportunity was or what it entailed, and there was this opportunity and you didn't take it, and you look back and you perhaps have some regret. Maybe you were just too late. It was that investment or that uh, decision you needed to make that didn't happen, and you were just too late, and so you missed opportunity. Or maybe, maybe it's worse, maybe somebody pushed you aside or cheated you or lied so they could get the upper hand, and then you missed opportunity. And I want you to think of specific opportunities in your life or moments in your life where this might have happened, gaps that you didn't take. And maybe it's evoking some relatively strong emotions in you this morning, maybe some regret, maybe some anxiety, maybe some anger, or maybe relief (laughs) and thankfulness, and you're grateful that you missed that opportunity. The most gaps that I've never taken in my life were on the rugby field. <laughs> um, but in seriousness, one that I can really remember was a friend in university, um, a close friend. And I had several opportunities to speak into his life. And he was going to make a decision to date a girl that I knew was going to be bad for both of them. And um, I knew him well and had a few opportunities to share with him, but I didn't. And I missed that gap. And so he started dating that girl. And after three years of up and down relationship that was just rather messy and hurt both of them, they they obviously broke up. And I really regret that, missing that opportunity. And just watching his life kind of not do so well, it really broke my heart. And it actually affected my relationship with him even to this day. And so I'm sure we can all think of opportunities. We can all think of opportunities we didn't take. We can all think of missed opportunities. We can all think of gaps that we didn't run through. And fortunately this morning, um, we're going to get into Ezra Nehemiah and we're going to see that this group of people who we're going to look at this morning, 2,500 years ago, had a very similar opportunity that they missed and it cost them. It cost them. And so let's turn over to Ezra chapters 1 to 4. You can open in your Bibles if you've got them. Um, but just to help us orientate that, I need help, as I told you, I'm involved in kids' church, so I need 10 volunteers, specifically Seb, six guys, Seb, can you come up please, where's Seb, six guys and four girls, okay, you can come, four of you, anybody. Okay, Seb, this is for you, bro, this one, and you can pop that on, okay, Mark, this is for you, bro. That on. Try and make it work on your head. That's for you. Okay. There we go. Okay. Then I need. Okay, you two girls can come stand here. Come across. Neil, come here. Meg, stay there. You two guys come here. You're going to be the exiles. Okay. And one, two. Three, and then I need your, all the rest of you. Come stand over here, please. Not the not the two who already have a role. You're going to be the people of the land. Okay. Cool. So I need you guys, exiles. Please go. I mean, people of the land. Please go and stand on that side. Okay. You two are over there. You can stand there. It's perfect. Okay. So we've got our actors in Ezra chapters one to four. Very willing actors, as you can tell. Come a little bit across here. Okay. That's good. That's good. <laughs> These guys have been very prepped and they're ready to go, hey, of course. 
Okay, so we're going to just walk through Ezra chapter 1 to 4 in a little bit of a creative way. Again, when you look at the Old Testament, it can feel a little bit dry and dreary, so let's mix it up a bit. Okay, so Ezra chapter 1 starts with the very first line of Ezra chapter 1. It starts with this. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, oh, that guy over there, the king, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. Okay, so we start right at the start of Ezra chapter 1, and it says that the word of Jeremiah, he was an old Israelite prophet, is going to be fulfilled in these books that we're going to read. So when you read Ezra and Nehemiah, think Jeremiah. In fact, think a whole bunch of other prophets, but specifically Jeremiah in this case. Okay, so Jeremiah is the, I'm Jeremiah. Okay, so my word is going to be fulfilled. Okay, then we go on Ezra chapter 1. King Cyrus is going to read an edict. He gives this edict, this announcement. Please read it for us, King Cyrus. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his peoples among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord. The God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, may, he, may their God be with them. And any in the locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Okay, awesome. Thank you, King Cyrus. Okay, so God stirred the heart of a Persian king, King Cyrus, right? That's the first part of our design of the book. Then what happens after he stirs the king? An Israelite leader gets commissioned, and here steps up is Zerubbabel, our, our Israelite leader. Okay, the, Israel, king, the king of Persia is given a, a, um, an edict. He said, all the exiles, if you want, you guys can go and join Zerubbabel. Thank you. They can join Zerubbabel, and uh, they are firstly allowed to pillage the, uh, well, pillage the Babylonians for any resources they need uh, for their long journey back to Jerusalem. So you guys can go and get some resources, all of you, from the Babylonians quickly. Some of them, maybe their wallets or some money, something like that. Okay, here we go. Perfect. Not too much. Not too much. You've got a long journey. You can't pack it all in. Okay. <laughs> Wonderful. Okay, so they've got the stuff they need for their long journey. And this is now the end of Ezra. I'm not making this up, by the way. It's in the Bible. Okay, it's in Ezra. And now they start their long journey at the end of Ezra chapter 1. Okay, exiles, you just need to go around this middle island, okay? And walk a little bit slowly. About a thousand kilometers, by the way. That's how far they have to go. There, off you guys go. There they go, leaving Babylon, going back to Jerusalem, looking very excited, as you can tell, on their way home after 70 years of exile. Okay. And so then we move on to Ezra chapter 2. Okay, slow down, slow down. Ezra chapter 2, there's a long list of names. So if you look there in your Bibles, Ezra chapter 2, there's a really long list of names. And they list all the people um, who are the exiles going back to uh, Jerusalem. Even some of the animals they list. About 50,000 people in total go back. And isn't it so amazing that God makes this long list? He really cares about people. Like each name, he names them. He didn't have to. He could have said 50,000 exiles went back to Jerusalem. But he chooses to list them family by family. It's quite incredible. And so then eventually they arrive in Jerusalem. This is Jerusalem. Good job, guys. And they meet some of the locals. Here are the locals. Say hello to the locals who are there in Jerusalem. Okay, wonderful. And then they settle in. Okay, so just to orientate us around where we are, we have God stirs, uh, stirs a king. He gives an edict. And um, he sends Zerubbabel and the exiles back to Jerusalem. And now they've arrived back in Jerusalem. And we're at the end of chapter 2. We get to chapter 3. It gets really nice and interesting here. Okay. 
So the exiles now need to build an altar. Okay, so you guys just need to grab maybe three or four chairs there and start building an altar. So what happens at the start of chapter three? And um, <laughs> there's their altar. Clearly, they don't know what the altar looks like. Can we have a photo of the altar on the board? There we go. That's kind of more what it looks like, but anyway, good job, guys. Okay, so they build an altar to the Lord, and this is actually a really critical moment, right? For 70 years, the Israelites, the exiled Israelites, have not had an altar to sacrifice to God. That's a critical center point in the, in the uh, Jewish faith. So that's a beautiful altar. So they're really stoked now because they can start sacrificing to God again. They can start making the burnt offerings that he required in order they can get forgiveness and they can relate to God rightly. Okay, so they built their altar and, um, and then they go on after that to make some sacrifices. You don't need to do that. Um, and they start up the liturgical calendar again. You can show the next picture. And the first, um, the first uh, festival they celebrate again is the Festival of Booths or the Festival of Tabernacles. And they build these little shelter things to celebrate that and to remember the 40 years in the desert. And uh, so they go ahead of that and they carry on sacrificing. And uh, now we get to the part in Ezra chapter 3 where they need to rebuild the temple. Okay, so guys, we need to rebuild the temple. <laughs> Go for it. No, I'm joking. Okay. You can just pretend to be building something over here. And so they uh, build a temple, which is obviously the center point of the Jewish faith as well, right? That's where God comes and dwells with his people. And so they start laying the foundation of the temple. Okay, you're asking to lay the foundation of the temple. And they're busy with that. So you can see Jews work very, very hard, obviously. <laughs> okay, then they finish, they complete the laying of the foundation of the temple. Good job, guys. And um, this is now the end of Ezra chapter 3. Now they celebrate because they've laid the foundation of the temple and they are so stoked. Half of them celebrate and the other half cry. Okay, two of you cry and two of you celebrate. Okay. And so you can see this pattern being fulfilled, right? Persian king stirred the... um, Jewish leader uh, takes the guys back. They start a task. They rebuild the altar. They rebuild the temple, and they celebrate. And then we get to Ezra chapter 4, and this is where we're going to focus this morning. Ezra chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. I'm going to read directly from the text. And uh, here we're going to have, who's going to read for us? Whoever's got the text behind them, you guys are going to be the ones that read, Megan and Jenna. Okay. This is the section, Ezra chapter 4. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin, that's the people of the land there, heard that the exiles were building a temple to the Lord, to the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the families of the Israelites. Okay, and I need to come to Zerubbabel. There we go. And this is what they said. You can read your thing, Megan. <laughs> Let us help you with the book, because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Asaradan, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, We have no cause of that in building a temple to our God. We are going to build it with the Lord, the God of Israel, as King the king of Persia, commanded us. Then the peoples around them, or the peoples of the land, the enemies of Israel, set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid of, uh, um, to go on building. They bribed the officials to work against them and frustrate their plans. And during the entire reign, of Cyrus, king of Persia, down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Okay, so they had this huge opposition. Well done, guys. Thank you. you can go grab your seats. You can just pop those down over there. Just pop them over there. 
Okay, you guys are brilliant actors. I can tell that's what you're studying. <laughs> okay. So maybe that was more confusing than helpful, but the point is, <laughs> go and read Ezra chapter 1 to 3, and maybe it'll come alive with this little skit we've just done. I want to um, just read for us again Ezra chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, and then we're going to jump into it verse by verse. We got it up there. Cool. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin had heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, let us help you build, because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Ezrahadon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, and here's the key line, you have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and to make them afraid to go on building. They bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And so to summarize, basically what happens, people of land come to the Israelites like, please, can we help you build your temple? They're like, no, you can't. Then the people of land oppose them and get angry with them. And so let's dive in. Ezra chapter 4, verse 1. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel. Okay, so the first question is, and this is context. Remember Bible reading tips I said I was going to mention earlier. Context is critical. We've got to know what's going on in that situation. You know, if a soccer goal is scored, if it's scored in an under nine game, it's cool. But when it's scored to win the Soccer World Cup final, it's incredible. And so context of a soccer goal being scored is critical. Context in reading the Bible is critical for us to truly understand it. And so who are the enemies of Judah and Benjamin? Or they also mention verse 4 as the people around, or in another translation, the people of the land. And for that, we need to jump to 2 Kings um, 17, verses 24 to 33. Don't worry, we won't read it. Uh, I'll basically just summarize it for you. Uh, you can go and read it later if you'd like to. But essentially, the Israelites have been exiled from their land by the Assyrians, and then King Ashahadon, you heard his name earlier, chose to repopulate that land with people from foreign towns. He's like, you guys move in here and you can take the land. But these people didn't worship God. They were not uh, worshipers of God. And then this really curious incident happens. <laughs> and I love the Bible. It's like, it's just not boring. There's just these incredible little things that happen as, long as we go along. God sends lions to go and attack and kill the people. <laughs> What? <laughs> that's interesting. That's in the Bible? Yes, it is. So that's what God did. And isn't it just amazing how he works in these incredible and mysterious ways from time to time so that we will draw close to him and so that we will come to him. And because that happened, the people around were like, oh no, maybe we need to worship this God of this land because clearly something's not working here. So then they say to king of Assyria, please send us a priest. King of Assyria sends them a priest and that priest then... Um, instructs them in the ways of the Lord, and they get to know God. But they continue worshiping their gods along with the one true God. And so that's who these people are. They've been moved into the land um, by the king of Assyria, and they didn't worship God. Then they get a priest, um, an Israelite priest, and they start worshiping God, but they keep worshiping their own gods. And so as you saw in that video, and as we know from other texts in the Bible, those people, the people of the land or the people around, the enemies of Judah and Benjamin, they're all the same people, they would have included some Israelites. 
those who hadn't been exiled to Assyria or to uh, Babylon. But in this section, I think it's speaking about the resettled Assyrians, not necessarily about the, the Israelites. And then one more note before we go on from verse 1, is that these people had been in the land for quite a long time, probably about 150 years-ish. So they were the landowners. These guys had the bucks. They had the money. They were running the politics of the time. They were financially and politically in power in that place in Jerusalem at that time. So these exiles, the Israelites, come back and they're like, whew, what do we do? (laughs) This is our place, but these guys seem to be running the show. So you get a bit of the context there. And so that's verse 1. Let's move on to verse 2. Ezra chapter 4 verse 2. They came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, Let us help you build. Because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. Now this is an interesting ask, isn't it? And when you understand some of the context and so on, that these guys had political power and stuff, you wonder what their motives were in really asking. Another interesting note there is they didn't ask to help build the altar. I don't know if you noted that. They, weren't, they didn't want to help build the altar. Maybe it's because it was small or they had lots of their own altars that they were sacrificing on. But when the temple comes, they ask, can they please help rebuild the temple? And so the exact motives we don't know. But we can probably discern from the text that they either had one of two motives. Either they were trying to maintain their political and economical power and they saw this as a potential threat to that, so they were like, we want to come help rebuild so that they could make all sorts of shenanigans there. Or they had a genuine heart desire to worship the God who they had heard something about more fully because they knew that the temple of God is where his presence comes and dwells among his people. So it's one of those two. Either it was not great motives or it was good motives. But they do offer to rebuild the temple. And I stand in the second court. I think they had... Good motives. They wanted to more fully worship this God who they'd heard about from the Israelite priests. They knew the significance of the task. And so here's just a quick little sidebar for the Christians in the room this morning, if you consider yourself a Christ follower. We should not distance ourselves too far from these people of the land, those who worship the true God, yet kept on worshiping their own idols. To me, when I look at myself in the mirror, I see some of myself in them. Maybe we, we do too. And I'll tell you why. Because we actually so often worship God alongside these other little distracting demigods in our lives. We worship God alongside the insatiable desire for approval of others. That's one that I struggle with. I struggle with the approval of others. I seek it. Make decisions based on the approval of others and not on the wisdom and leading of God behave in a certain way, talk in a certain way, say certain things for the approval of others, not for the approval of God. We worship God along with an unquenchable desire for success. We all have these little different heart idols that lead us astray, these little demigods. Maybe it's comfort for you. Maybe just do everything to be comfortable. Maybe it's control. You just can't handle when you don't have control of the situation. What is this little distracting uh, demigod that's leading you astray? We often get so distracted, and what it leads to is real, cold, ineffective Christian living because we're so distracted by these things that aren't where our focus and attention and worship should go to the one true God. And so, God, help us, is our prayer, to live to worship you alone and you only. And 
And so we're grateful when you're a Christ follower this morning, when you look at the empty cross, that Christ died and rose again, that he has ascended and seated at the right hand of the Father, that he has sent the Spirit to live and dwell inside of you so you don't have to live in captivity and enslavement to these hard idols that try and distract you. Our hearts are a factory for idols, aren't they? (laughs) We don't have to live there because we have the victory of the cross available to us and for us, and we have the Spirit living us so we can live in victory. And so perhaps at the end of verse 2 this morning, we can identify a little bit more with these people of the land, with these guys who were asking the Israelites, please, can we come and rebuild the temple with you? Because maybe we would have been some of those people and we just want to come and worship God more fully. And so Ezra chapter th- uh, verse four, chapter, uh, chapter four, verse three, excuse me. And this is the tension moment, guys. Maybe I'm the only one sensing this, but <laughs> there's a tension happening here. People are coming and there's conflict happening. This is a historical moment, guys. This isn't just a story. This actually happened. These people were not happy with one another after this interaction. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, it would be awesome if you guys came to help us. In fact, we will tell you all about our God and how amazing he is and and he's worthy is of our worship. (laughs) If only, eh? We just wish it said that. But they didn't. They said, you're not part of, Uh, You have no part with us in building the temple to our God. We alone will build it. It's exclusively for us, to our Lord, the God of Israel, as King of Cyrus, the King of Persia, commanded us. And so there's tension in the room here. These guys have come and asked something, I think, sincerely. Obviously, motives, we never really know, but I think there's some sincere motive there. And the Israelites have just said, no, it's for us alone. This is exclusively for us. They've just rejected these guys full on. And how do we all respond to rejection? Not well. <laughs> I know I get upset, and I want to like retaliate, and I'm sure most of us too. You know, when you don't get that invite to the wedding that you were so hoping for, you get a little bit upset. You know, or you don't make the team that you were so hoping for, you get a bit upset. So I remember when I didn't make the the um, rugby A team for the first time, I was super upset. <laughs> Felt like rejected by the coach. I was like, how could you? Anyway, um, the point is, when we rejected, we all respond in a similar way, and these guys did the same. They did the same. And I can imagine that I have sympathy for the Israelites because they would have had this tension in them. They would have known we need to be a set-apart and distinctive people for God. But yet we know why we need to be that, for the nations. That's why we need to be set-apart. God said we're going to be set-apart in the light so that the nations will see and come and worship the one true God. And so there's that tension in their hearts. And then there's this tension that the King, the King Cyrus has given this edict. We must build the temple. But we know God has said all must come to the temple. So now what? What do we do? And so there's this tension, I think, inside the Israelites. And we need to have some sympathy for them too, right? They're not doing this just to be horrible. They're trying to maintain and and keep themselves safe and secure. They're trying to maintain their identity as the people of God. And so there's that tension in the story as well. And we wish it had the Hollywood ending, you know, where they're all just worshiping together and they're best mates. And here's the center of worship to God in Jerusalem. And everybody comes and it's wonderful, but it's not. These are real people just like us. And they say, no, you have no part with us in building the temple of God. And so as another side, two quick read, Bible reading notes here, is that the narrative doesn't always, um, sorry, um, 
the narrative doesn't equal endorsement. So it's telling a story here. God's not necessarily endorsing the behavior and the response of the Israelites, but it is telling the story. So we need to realize that when we read the Bible in general, but even specifically the Old Testament. And then one more, there's a really good principle here at play, but it's not necessarily played out well. So the principle is what we take, not necessarily the practice, right? And Paul mentioned all these things a few weeks ago. But the principle here is that people, God's people need to be set apart. And if you're a Christ follower, you do need to be set apart so that others will see how awesome God is and come to him. But we don't need to practice it the way that these guys did, right? And so there's two helpful Bible reading tips that I found incredibly helpful in reading Ezra and Nehemiah specifically. And so my position is, along with many others that, um, that I've read and studied, is that these guys had genuine motives. They wanted to come, and they wanted to worship God, and they wanted to help with the rebuilding project. Not for bad motives, but for good motives. And so here's the crux. Even if they had the worst and most impure motives, that they just wanted to maintain power, whatever it was, was this the best response by the Israelite leaders and by Zerubbabel? Was this the best response? Or maybe they missed an opportunity. Maybe they missed an opportunity. Maybe there was a gap there that they didn't take that was presented to them. And so I want to look at a few clues from the text, which I think presents a pretty compelling case that they missed an opportunity here in Ezra and Nehemiah. And then we're going to land. And so the first clue this morning, was this a missed opportunity, is that their response created an unnecessary opposition. And Ezra 4, 4 to 5, show us this. The peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They bribed officials and worked against them and frustrated their pl- to frustrate their plans. During the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And so they created this unnecessary opposition. For 90 years, guys, these guys frustrated their plans. Whether it was just getting up their, their nose around rebuilding the temple, they actually stopped for 10 years because of these guys' opposition. If it wasn't for the act of God through some of his prophets, they wouldn't have started rebuilding the temple again. So they did that. And then they went and married Israelites, which is like the worst thing. We'll talk more about that next week. Which is like the worst thing. And then they went and frustrated the plans of Nehemiah to rebuild the walls. And so for 90 years, these guys now had this opposition living in their face. And this opposition, remember, had the political and financial power at that time in that land. So it was a strong opposing force in their face. And we can understand why. (laughs) These guys did it. They just rejected them cold. They were like, no. We can't come. Not for you. Just for us. And so I think that's the first clue that this was a missed opportunity. It created opposition, I think unnecessary opposition, to God's purposes in that place at that time. Second clue. We see that the Israelites entered self-preservation mode. I think we all tend towards this, towards self-preservation mode, right? We go back to the beginning of Ezra and that edict that uh, our king read so wonderfully for us this morning, King Cyrus. Ezra chapter 1, verses 3 to 4, Ezra said that, um, Cyrus said this, Any of his people, that's God's people, the Israelites, among you who may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And here's the crux. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, 
people of the land. Anyone, does that hint anything? People of the land where survivors may be living. People are to provide for them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. And so King Cyrus's edict to the Israelites specifically said, people in the land, if there are any of them there and they offer support, take it for the building of the temple of God. He said it, but they didn't. They said, no, 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 you got no part. And so it became this like sort of exclusive thing, you know, just for the Israelites. This is our temple. We're going to rebuild it. Don't help us. And so I think it's pretty clear that they misinterpreted the edict of Cyrus. (laughs) They just read it how they wanted to read it. They were so focused on rebuilding their identity as a people and rebuilding the holy city and setting up these worship um, uh, systems and this calendar and and the temple and all this stuff that they they just wanted to self-preserve. This was just for them, us four and no more. Although you can sympathize, they'd been in exile for many years. And they'd been in exile because their forefathers had assimilated with the surrounding people. They'd just become just like the other surrounding people. They'd started worshiping their idols. They'd started getting all distracted. And so God judged them and took them into exile. And these Israelites are like, no, we don't want to do that again. So everyone stay out. Just us. We're going to get it right. I promise. This time we won't be disobedient to God. We won't do our own thing. We won't worship idols. Well, if we read on, we see that didn't work so well. And so to self-protect and to self-preserve, they jump straight into preservation mode and they make the qualifications for entry impossibly high. If you're not an exile, you're out. If you're not a returning exile, you're out. You're not allowed to be part of us. And so perhaps in doing that, and I think we do the same when we're into self-preservation mode, they missed what God was trying to lead them to do. In trying to rebuild their identity and this place and this worship and all that stuff, they missed the very one in whom they were supposed to be placing their identity in his heart, in his call to be a light to the nations. And so perhaps they would have interpreted the edict of Cyrus correctly if they had not been in self-preserve mode. And so they were blinded by self-preservation. And I think that's the second clue to the fact that they missed an opportunity here. Thirdly, and I think for me, most convincingly, and it links to the previous one, they forgot their original mandate. The returned exiles forgot their original mandate. And for this one, we're going to jump into, uh, out of Ezra quickly, for the, um, for the only time into the book of uh, Zechariah. Zechariah was an Israelite prophet, and he was a contemporary. He lived with those people while they were rebuilding the temple. He was there. He's not some far-off dude. He was there, and he was prophesying to the people. In fact, he was critical in them getting to finish the rebuilding of the temple. And so this is what he says in Zechariah, in his book, uh, prophetic book, Zechariah chapter 2, verses 10 to 11. Shout and be glad, daughter of Zion. What does that mean? That's talking about the Jews or the people in Jerusalem. That's what the daughter of Zion means. Shout and be glad, daughter of Zion, for I am coming. This is God. I am coming, and I will live among you, declares the Lord. Many nations, that's key, many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. Sounds like a missed opportunity, hey? I will live among you and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. And so this is an echo through Zechariah who was with them of the original mandate they'd been given 
through Abraham. Abraham, the father of the Christian and Jewish faith, years ago, God made a covenant with him that said this, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And so that was the original mandate, to be blessed by God in order to be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. Just like Zechariah said, many nations will be joined to the Lord in that day and will become my people. And so they missed a prime opportunity to fulfill that mandate as the covenant people of God, to be a blessing to all the nations. They forgot their original mandate. I want to ask you this morning, if you're a Christ follower, have you forgotten your mandate as a Christ follower? Do you know what your mandate is? Are we being blinded by self-preservation when we're just trying to look after ourselves? Are we living in the mandate that Christ has given us, the great commission that he's given us to go and make disciples of all nations? And so it would appear that these people have missed a gap. I think these three clues point to the fact that these guys missed an opportunity. The exiled Israelites missed an opportunity to welcome these people in. And their best human intentions and and efforts, they were so blinded by self-preservation that they missed God's mandate for them. The people of the land had put their hopes in these Israelites. They had. That they would lead them to God. But it turned out that they didn't. They let them down. In fact, they rejected them. All their hopes had been placed in these Israelites, and the Israelites just rejected them. But there was one who was rejected for us so that we don't have to be rejected. There was one who was not blinded by self-preservation. He didn't miss the opportunity. He fulfilled God's mandate perfectly for him, and his name is Jesus. In fact, Jesus did the most unimaginable thing we could ever imagine. We can't even imagine it. He left heaven to become a man, to live here among us, to live a perfect life, guys, perfect. Not like those Israelites, not like us, perfect life. To die and be raised again so that we can know God, so we can be in right relationship with God. Let us not forget that. Let us not take that lightly if you're a Christ follower this morning, and if you aren't, This is an invitation to you. Christ came so that you can have friendship with God. So you don't have to have, so that you don't have to be rejected. No one can say anymore, you have no part with us. Can't say that. No one can say to you, no, you cannot come and experience the presence of God. No one can say to you anymore that you cannot come to God like those Israelites did to the people of the land. If you want to come to him, Jesus made the way for that to be possible. He is the presence of God. He came to earth. We don't have to go to him at the temple in Jerusalem. He came to earth to make himself known to us and to be present with us in the most profound, beautiful, personal way we could ever imagine. And we're all welcome. It's not exclusive. Not just these little people, not just us four no more. All are welcome. Look at us in this room. Any of you here Jews, Israelites? None of you. We're from the nations. We are all welcome to come close to him because Jesus came and made a way for us to know God. He 
came for all nations. And you know what? Not just to rebuild the temple here on earth, in one city in Jerusalem, but to rebuild his kingdom on earth throughout the entire earth. That's part of our mandate. That's part of our mission. How incredible. So big and expansive and awesome. And he's entrusted it to us. So I want to land this morning. We've, been all, we've all been presented by God with the most incredible opportunities. You may have missed some opportunities in your life. These Israelites missed a huge opportunity to welcome people in and to show them to, G, to God. And the most incredible opportunity we've been afforded, each one of us, is to know God and be known by Him. To know Him and be known by Him. And more than that, We've been given the opportunity, not just the opportunity, the command to love him and to love those around us, to love God and to love our neighbors. Not push them aside. Say you have no part but to love our neighbors. And the wonderful thing is because Jesus has come, we can actually take that opportunity. We can actually love God and love our neighbors. And so the, uh, the worship this morning was just such a wonderful expression for me of this loving our neighbors. None of those guys up there, well, none of them are first language Isikosa speakers. Yet we sang Isikosa song, or at least part of it. And not all of them are first language Afrikaans speakers, yet we sang an Afrikaans song this morning. The band took us outside of our comfort zone so that others would be welcomed in. And so my challenge to you this morning, if you're a Christ follower, is to go outside of your comfort zone and love on somebody this week. Whatever that looks like. Not to push them away and say, no, no, you have no part. This is my space. I own this space. I, this, is, this is where I belong. But no, no, no. You're welcome in. You can come into my space. I want to show you to God. Whatever that looks like. And so that's my challenge to you this morning. In this week, think of somebody, maybe in your workplace maybe where you live, and go and show them love in some surprising way. I just imagine what it would look like if we did actually live like this. <laughs> if we took those opportunities that are presented to us daily, that God lays before us to love him and to love our neighbors, those opportunities where perhaps the spirit of God is prompting you, leading you just to have this conversation, just to say this one thing. Maybe it's hard to do. We have opportunities all the time. And imagine we took them. I really think the church would be the most attractive and unavoidable thing in the world if we actually lived like that if people in this community really loved one another and took each opportunity they were presented to love one another and to love God, yo, it would be amazing. It would be incredible. And we can because we have the Spirit of God living in us. Someone prayed it this morning in the prayer meeting, but praying around how the most powerful witness and testimony of a Christian community is the love we have one for another
So let's take up that challenge. Let's love one another and see this community just come to life with those who cannot say no to the love they sense in this place and they see and they experience, not just in this room, but amongst these people and amongst the churches in our town. Let's not say, no, you have no part with us, but rather come and join us. Come and join us.